working on the sound every week. We're narrowing it down. Still got some things we got to work out, but we're learning. It's been a learning curve the last couple of weeks. It's been very frustrating. One of the things my job's been really good at is they're really good at working through frustration. I'm not very good at that. I like immediately as soon as it gets hard, I'm like, oh, let's just go back to the old way. Like I've had to really learn how to be good about that, about working through change and working through um, difficulty. You know, it always comes up in the job because um, there are times where at, at work we're implementing something new and they're like, listen, it's just going to, like when we got into a reservation system, now we have this huge online reservation system, everything is done online. And, and what's interesting to me is that that initial change. We went from doing it in a book where you called and we put your name in this book and it was all this like homemade page that we had made where we kept track of it all. And then that switch over, there were all kinds of problems at first. And I think anybody else would have been like, uh, let's abandon, jump ship, you know, like it's sinking. But it was like one of those things where the guy there that's running it uh, was just like, no, we're going to figure this thing out. Like, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We're going to get it wrong and apologize a lot in the beginning. But once this thing goes, it's going to be better for all of us. And he was right. It was so hard. And it's been like a learning curve, like to look back and go, okay, what did I, what was my takeaway? How can I apply that to my life? And I see it a lot in ministry. I see it a lot in ministry, especially like now with the sound. You know, it's going to be hard, but is it better? Yes, it's better. When it comes to this teardown, it's going to be so fast. It's just night and day. So it has been better on that end. Well, this week I've been uh, spending some time praying about where I wanted us to go next. Like I said, um, we're pushing into Exodus, but it was because we were studying through Nehemiah on Wednesday. I just kept landing there. No matter what I kept trying to do of like looking somewhere else, I just kept landing back on the book of Exodus. I just couldn't shake the prayer of the people uh, in Nehemiah. You know, we're getting into chapter 9. We're going to be there this, this uh, Wednesday talking about chapter 9 and the prayer of the people. And, and around verse 9 and 10 of Nehemiah, you don't have to turn there. We'll, you want to go to Exodus chapter 1 because that's where we're really going to be. Um, but around Nehemiah 9, verses 9 and 10, it reads, You saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials, and all his people, for you knew how arrogantly they were teaching or treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. That's, what Nehemiah, that's the prayer of the people in Nehemiah. They might have forgot a lot of things that led them into ruin. But the one thing they had never forgotten is what happened in Exodus. It's pretty amazing, right? It said a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. That's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. This is how uh, the generation that would come years and years after the days of Moses would look at this time period. They would look at this time period as a time where God made a glorious reputation for himself. So it does bear some interest. There's a reason why uh, uh, this is an interesting uh, book. It's both one of the worst times in the, the, the cultural history of the Jews, and it's also one of their spiritual best times, right? Uh, it was first revealed to Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, 12 through 14, which reads, As the sun was going down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. 
Then the Lord said to Abraham, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at the ripe old at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. So if they had kept the words that God spoke with them, if they would have kept them close to their heart, if they would have believed them, then it's possible they would have seen this coming. Is that right? It's kind of a you know, obvious answer, I think. But I think if you, took, if you took a bit for this moment, I think it took a bit for this moment to appear in their lives. But God said it, and it does come to pass. Now, I'm not teaching on that subject, but we could stop here and just sit on it, right? I mean, that's definitely something you've heard before in church, right? God said it, and it happened. That's kind of the way the Bible runs. God promised it, and it came to pass. If God says he's going to do something, he's not like us. No, he's going to do it. Amen? There's also this history of God telling us what he's going to do, right? And then actually doing it, right? There's also this thing where he actually tells us and we forget it. <laughs> right? We walk away and we forget he ever said it. And then when we're like in the middle of it, we're like totally surprised. Believe this ever happened? What is going on? Uh, you know, uh, and then God has to remind us that... no. No, I told you about it. No, I did tell you, right? Right? He, he did say it. But he, and, he, and, and here's what's even more interesting. He made sure it was written down. <laughs> Not only did I tell you, but I made sure it was written down so that you would know that I told you, right? We just forget it. Or even worse, we don't care enough to remember. Come on, this isn't like an Old Testament thing. Jesus experienced this with his own disciples. Remember this? Hey, I told you this. And then later on they would go, Oh, yeah, he told us this. We just didn't understand it yet, right? And it would be like, like hindsight. Well, if he would have told it. No, he did tell us. It totally happened, just like he said. So this, this moment is historical in both that we see the history of the Jewish people and one of the worst situations in human history. But we also see God manifest himself in such a way that even today he's memorialized through other literature and even like our cultural movies today. I mean, every so often we got to put out like we had the Charleston Heston, uh, is it right? Charleston Heston, right? And, and he totally played Moses, probably the best one, right? Then they tried to come out with another one that was horrible, but they're trying to, they, they can't get away from the story. It's incredible. It's an incredible story, right? And so the, our culture even recognizes how amazing this story is. Everybody recognizes, right? This is the first Exodus back to the place God had originally called them to. This is the first return. This is the first one. I can't think of a better place to position ourselves as students and disciples and learn as much as we can. And that's where we begin this morning. That's where we begin. There's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of things I think we can hammer on, right? Without even getting into it, we can hammer on it. But this is where we're going to begin. So in Exodus 1, and I'm going to do this in the spirit of Nehemiah and in the days of old and for the reverence of God's holy word, we're going to stand this morning for the reading of God's word. We just got through reading how Nehemiah, they stood. Listen, I'm not going to make you stand for the whole book of Exodus. Praise God. Right? Praise God. All right. We're going to read. These are the names of the sons of Israel. That is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, 
Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came into power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us. Then they'll escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build cities in Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became, so that the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave his order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and, Fu and I can't say that name, and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women... As they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all the people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Now let's pray real quick. Father, I pray right now that you would use your word to open our hearts, God. Open our hearts, God. Make us receive the word you have for us this morning, God. Make us students of your word this morning, God. Make us disciples. Use your word to plant a seed in this word that will grow and develop fruit, God. Plant it in a way, plant your word in a way that we would not forget it, God, that we would draw closer to you uh, and show us, God, through your word, the way to return, where our hearts should be, the heart of repentance, the heart of humility, Lord, the broken and contrite heart. Show us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So the day of Joseph and his house are over. It's done. Right. His actions and his reputation had gotten the Israelites far. But a new season had begun. Right. A season where no one remembers Joseph. Apparently the Egyptians. Think about the irony of all this. With all their uh, hieroglyphics meant to help them remember, managed to forget a part of their history where they were rescued by someone other than an Egyptian. Come on. Have you not seen like half the History Channel? They painted the walls up of everything they have. They carved and etched in all of their history. And this is the one thing they decide, you know what? We're going to scrape the walls clean. We're going to erase that part of history where we needed help, where we were weak, where we didn't see it coming, where we needed somebody else's help to get through, right? In the meantime, Joseph and all his descendants have been busy. What does the Bible say they've been doing? It says they've been making lots and lots of babies, all right? I heard a guy the other day that said, this is what happens when you don't have TV, all right? That's what he said. This guy had like eight kids. I was like, wow. He's like, yeah, we don't have TV. I thought that was funny. 
I've never heard that. That's a good comment. I told him I was going to totally use that, so I use it this morning. I have to give him credit, though. I didn't make that up. In all seriousness, this was and is the command of God, though. They were just following what God had told them from the beginning. Genesis 1.28, it reads, And God blessed them, and God said to them, right, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the fowl in the air and every other living thing that moves upon the earth. So God has commanded us and commanded them to multiply. And it's a simple word, right? The word in the Aramaic means to branch off, means to multiply, to increase, right? And ultimately, they grew in numbers so great that they eventually outnumbered the Egyptians. Verse 9 says, the people outnumber us and are stronger than we are. So this is an interesting switch. The Egyptians, who hadn't feared anything from the Israelites up to this point. Remember, Joseph has taken over. The Egyptians are doing really, really well. If you, don't, if, if you remember, the, the Israelites are working for them. It's not the other way around. So in their, uh, uh, in their society, these Jews have come up and, and kind of built up the financial stability of Egypt, right? There was no reason to fear them, right? And yet here they are falsely accusing them of an action that hadn't even happened, right? They worried about this. The Jews hadn't risen up in rebellion, nor had they behaved in any way that was violent. But in reality, the Egyptians had just forgotten the story of Joseph. They were ignorant also of their own history. Their motivation for such atrocities were surely done out of fear. This is how racism begins. This is how racism begins. Fear drove them to racially persecute the Jews. There's nothing they did. It was sheer fear that drove them to racially persecute the Jews. However, persecution uh, caused the opposite effect upon the Jews. Instead of dying, which is what they were trying to do is kill them off, right? Their, or their population decreasing, they increased even more, right? History bears the truth of the church here, right? In that persecution has always caused incredible growth to the church. Always has, right? Remember the book of Esther? Esther 3.8 reads, There's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. That was uh, when Haman goes to the king and goes, These guys are a problem. They are growing at such a rate because though uh, Genesis still was working. That whole multiply until you outnumber everybody, that thing works. By the way, in Christianity, we teach that too. What that, that hasn't disappeared. I, I believe you should make babies. But let me tell you something. What's more important, God said make disciples. He wants born-again children. That's what he wants. Born-again children. I want you to multiply. I want you to increase. I want you to subdue the land. Do it by, by bearing new ch newborn children, right? Christianity is newborn children. It's not an Old Testament thing. Right? Book of Acts, Acts 2, 46, 47. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy. All the while, persecution is happening, right? All the while, it says, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship. Even though they were persecuted, even though they had just hung Jesus on the cross and trying to kill his movement, it was growing. It was growing. It was multiplying. Each time God's children are persecuted, they prosper. And that's just biblical fact. We don't ever like that kind of talk. But it's biblical fact that when we are pressed down, we rise up. That's just truth. 
I think what's maybe even more interesting, if you really investigate, is that through persecution, their separateness, their separateness has been what has sustained them. Now, this is a big deal because this theme or this idea is going to riddle itself down through history as a sign of who God's people are. So when these guys come out of all of this, this is going to be a command from God. Like, it's not there yet. It's expected that you're already separate from God, right? You're the Jews. You came from Abraham. So right now, it's this genealogy thing that's happening. We descended from Abraham, who was friends with God. And from that friendship has spawned the, you know, the stars in the sky, right? This, this, this God who loves everybody who's descended from his friend Abraham, where this promise comes from. But by the time Moses comes out of the Exodus, right, uh, in Deuteronomy 14, 2, he says, you have been set apart. He's talking to the people here. You have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God. And he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. By the way, wonderful choice of words, right? God calls you his own special treasure. Don't tell me God doesn't love people. God calls people who were wickedly against him at times his own special treasure. He started off with saying, you have been set apart, right? Now from God, God's mouth to the Levitical priesthood, Le Leviticus 20, 26, you must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart, there it is again, from all other people to be my very own. Moses says to the people, you are set apart. God says to the priest, you are set apart. I made you to be set apart. And this isn't forgotten about in the New Testament either. Jesus didn't come to abolish idea. If anything, he poured fire upon it and set it ablaze. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are not like that. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Moses, to the people you're set apart. God, to the priests you're set apart. Jesus, through the apostle Peter, right? You are set apart. Don't you get it? God has called you out. He's made you one of his own. You are different. You are, set, you are separate, right? The Egyptians, isn't it, isn't it funny? They never looked at the Jews as part of them. Why? Because the Jews worship one God. They don't worship multiple gods. They're not gonna, they never gave in to this whole adding, you know, this, this, this part of the culture. They did their thing while the culture did its thing. Right? Think about this. This separateness gained them favors in ways they couldn't have expected. For, for, for them, there were just, they were just living their lives to the best of their ability. But it didn't go unnoticed, right? Even though this was a time of racial tension and bigoted laws, there were still some, right, that were very seriously influenced by the strong belief of Jewish women, right? I mean, the midwives, right? So much, in fact, they'd lie to protect them, even if it cost them their own lives. Man, they were influenced. These guys love God so much. They are convicting. You hang around them, and it's hard not to see the power of their God, or the power of God has on their life right? The Egyptians, uh, and, and what were they lying about? Well, the Egyptians had apparently, check this out, they legalized the murder of newborns. Crazy. Specifically boys. They were allowed to just have baby girls. You know why? Because welcome to sex trafficking. You think it started today? It started a long time ago. Why? I mean, if they're all bad, why not just get rid of them all, right? Why you just keep the women? Uh-huh. Yeah. Not... Not, not, not great uh, character there. Egypt apparently had its own version of Planned Parenthood. This was their version of it. 
It didn't matter. Oh, in the womb, out of the womb, doesn't matter as long as it gets done. Right? I think that's interesting. The idea that killing babies isn't new. Right? The only difference between what the Egyptians were doing and what is happening in America is how crazy we justified it for the sake of convenience. The Egyptians had apparently legalized the murder of newborns. They were allowed to only just do the baby. That's crazy. So the thing is, this is, this is the story. This is chapter 1. This is me covering it, just basically bringing out the obvious. But what are the takeaways? What are things that we can look at here and go, okay, what can we grow from? Because ultimately, that's the part of studying the Word of God. We need something we can take away from this, that we can apply to our lives, that we can see and go, okay, these are the things that God wants me to, to walk away with. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to narrow it down to about four. All right, And I think these are the easiest to see. And I think after reading Nehemiah, we know the importance of being able to understand. Like without getting into some heavy, heavy theology and some other things, let's just narrow, I'm narrowing it down to four. That'll be easy, I think, to understand. The first being this. Do not discard the Old Testament as something you're not under. Do not discard the Old Testament. All right? Yes, you have freedom from the law, but the law of God isn't bad. It is not bad. It's there to remind you that you are a sinner in need of the grace of God. Paul said it like this to the Romans in Romans 7, 7. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Well, of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known what coveting is, uh, that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. He told the Galatians in chapter 3, 13 and 14, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoings, for it's written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promise uh, uh, Holy Spirit through faith. What he's saying is this, real simple, is that if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known I was a sinner. And if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have understand salvation. The law has its purpose. Oh, I might be free from some things, but it also helped me understood what was also holding me captive. And it showed me my freedom in Christ. Because I, because I was shown the captivity, I longed for what Christ offered. That's what he's saying, that the law helped drive me to the feet of Jesus. The law convicted me of my sin so that when Jesus offered me the way out by fulfilling the law, I was glad to take it. Good stuff. There's a lot to learn from the Old Testament about the character and nature of God. You can just as easily see Jesus in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. After all, and I think uh, Ravenhill said it best, uh, and, and I think this is really powerful. He says, people will say that Jesus came to die on a cross and bear the sins of many. While that may be correct, that wasn't his primary mission to us. Jesus, in, in 1 John 5, 20, reveals, and we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. What did Jesus come here to do? Oh, to die for sins and die for my sins? No, what he came for us to do is know God. We would do that through the dying of him, him fulfilling his purpose. But he came to bring glory to the Father. He came so that we might know the Father, Right? How, how, how did he accomplish that? By dying on a cross. Yeah, oh, that's what he did, right? That's the physical aspect of him accomplishing his mission. What was his mission? So that we would know the Lord. That was his mission. I want you to know the person that I love more than anything else. God the Father. I love him. Everything he says. That's why he was so quick to always point to God. You ever notice that? Everything he told me to say, I said it. It was all coming from him, guys. It's not me. You keep looking at me, but I'm telling you, it was all him. 
Like the only reason I'm going to the cross is because of him. He has such a longing for you that he is driving me. He's driving me there. He's, he's, he's allowing Pilate to step out of the way. He's allowing the priest. He's allowing these things because, guys, you should know him. You should know him. Even Jesus is always deferring glory. Isn't that interesting? We give it like crazy. We're ready to praise Jesus, all those things. But even Jesus goes, man, it's really the Father. If you just knew the Father, that's his heart. His heart was to put me here, right? His heart. Awesome. Awesome. The second thing we see in this first chapter is that the children of Israel did manage to pass down their faith in God from generation to generation. It's important. God didn't just want to be known by one generation. He wants to be known by all generations. God wants to be known. I agree with Tozer who said that God is waiting to be wanted. He's waiting to be known, right? Does anything change from the Old Testament to the New? No, right? God still is waiting to be wanted. God wants, to, wants you to know him. He wants it, right? The gospel was meant to be passed down as well. Think about it. That's what we're told to do. We're commanded to, right? Because it's the continuation of God's story from the beginning. From the beginning, he longed for a relationship. He created us. He has longed to walk with us like he walks with Abraham, like he walks with Moses. There's no reason you today can't walk just like they did. God wants to be in that level of friendship with you also. God is not just the friend of Abraham. He is the friend of Pastor Jim. He is the, your friend as well. Now, hopefully you look at him like that because that's how it should be. Thirdly, we have to be ready for persecution. It's coming, church. You'd better be prepared. Jesus didn't mince words. Mark 13, 9 through 13. When these things begin to happen, he says, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what you're going to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Man, I think about this as we're talking about Exodus, especially that. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. And here they are in Exodus. The children of Israel, they haven't done anything. They're just different. Their separateness is also the thing that wins people, but it's also the things that puts people off. It's this struggle between the two, right? Listen, when this happens, it won't matter that you were right about the culture. <laughs> okay? You see it coming, but it won't matter that you're right. Your opinion won't matter anymore. You'll be like the churches right now in China and North Korea in hiding, huddled around this little bitty light with whatever Bible you can get smuggled in. There was a interesting in this book that we're going to get ready to go through with the men and Women, one of the things that he talks about is that the churches in China a lot. He spent a lot of time there with the underground church in China. He said there for a while there was a season where the Chinese government actually lifted some of the difficulties for the Christian church there and allowed them to meet in public areas and in meeting in these places where they decided to have church like we have church, right? They, they hated it. Because you know what they found out? That when they have church like this, like when we have a setting where we just meet on a Sunday, and, and uh, um, 
it allowed their people to be lazy. Prayers started chilling out. They were having to really work hard to get their people to do stuff. Like they experience what we experience all the time. You know how 10% of the people do 100% of the work. In the church, it's about 10% volunteer rate. You can come to church, but 10% of the church actually works in the church is what they say. Right? If you go to a church that's like 20, 30%, that's like an unbelievable church in America. Right? Most people are, for most people, church is a spectator sport. I mean, statistically, that's just true. And the thing in China, you know what they discovered is when we allow them to just sit and be, and be preached to, they'll sit too. They'll do nothing. They'll inherently do nothing. But when they were, when the Chinese government stepped back in, crushed those buildings, just kicked them all out, and they had to spread back out and go back in their homes, everything just started to blossom again. Everything started to blossom. Listen, one day it'll be like that here. At that time, the word of God, I'm telling you, it will finally become precious. Because it's not there yet, man. We take for granted all the Bibles that we have access to. I mean, come on. I've read, I can't tell you how many translations, and there's people that just be glad to get one page of the Bible. That's why I make it a point. Like any Bible I have, I have to read it. It's not fair, and I usually pass it on. I can't, I'd feel so guilty. Can you imagine going to heaven and, and having to have that discussion with God of like, if, by the way, if anything, like, I don't know how anybody could walk to heaven or, or get to heaven and think like, man, if I don't feel guilty about being there, like I couldn't, I, did I do enough? Did I? Like, I know Jesus loves me and Jesus accepts me, but, like, I can't help but have that feeling, right? Can you imagine the person? I got stacked Bibles. Somebody has stacks and stacks of Bibles in their homes, and then they have to account the Lord for their life. And their life, man, I hope it was good because it would be nothing worse than the fact that you had all the Word in your house and you never, you didn't make it. I mean, I honestly think there's people that are going to be like that, right? And, and I think what's interesting when you see the church persecuted, especially you ever read uh, Tortured for Christ? If you hadn't, I would suggest that it. it's a great insight. It's, it's this guy is he talks about the persecuted church uh, uh, at that time. I promise you this. When the word becomes most precious, you'll remember whole chapters. You'll quote it word for word. He talked about there were guys that he knew inside these prisons that knew a whole the whole book of the Gospel of John by heart. And they would, they would quote it daily. The whole book. They would go through the whole book quoting it daily because that was all the one they could get. And so they had read it so many times that they knew the whole book backwards and forwards. Right? So, so I would say this. So set it in your mind now to master your heart here and dig in and become the student of God's word while there's still an opportunity to do so. Persecution will happen. When it does, the responsibility of the church in that moment is we will blossom, but it won't be blossomed by the people who sit back and are lazy. It's going to blossom by those who have determined in their heart to serve Jesus with everything in them, right? Better yet, the other opportunity is this, train others to be students. I feel like that's kind of what I do. The Lord made me, uh, you know, through the Marine Corps, kind of a soldier mentality. My, my whole my whole job is to train people up so that they can make it to the end. They can make it to the end. It's not just boot camp and you're out for three months, boom, that's it, you're set for life. No, continual training, continual educating, continually learning, constantly. It's not just my responsibility, it's yours as well. Lastly, we're to live set apart. We are to live set apart in a culture that's all-inclusive. Think about this and how hard it is. We're to live set apart in a culture that says you don't have to be a boy or a girl. You can be an it. And that doesn't know the whole gender. That doesn't understand biology. They just want everything to be included. Everything to be included. Nobody to be offended. Everybody to be included. And we're in a culture where we're actually saying as Christians, we're going, 
I can't be included in some things you do. You know, I can't be included to the some things you do. You know, one of the things I'm very careful about being a part of, especially here as I've pursued, one of the things God's placed on my heart when it comes to separateness is the idea of living holy and pure. You know, a lot of it comes from these older guys I listen to, like Wilkerson and Raven Hill and Tozer, who knew that, like, I, I mean, if you ever read Put the Trumpet in Thy Mouth, is the Wilkerson book that talks about TV and how bad TV's been for this generation and, and how much we need to like escape more from TV and, and really focus in on those quiet times with the Lord so that we're not so easily influenced by outside culture, right? We focus more in and we stay in the Lord. We focus in on God's Word and we allow God's Word to be the navigation point. Well, I agree with that. And the older I get, I, the more I hear God in my uh, uh, mind. I, t- I told my wife lately, I feel like God, if, if anything, he's told me to hold the line. Because I watch and I see pastors and I see, I see men who call themselves men of God and women of God who are not living in a way. I can't tell where the world begins and the church you know, ends or, or, or vice versa. I can't tell where that's happening. right? They look just like the world. No wonder the world thinks everything's okay and they don't get us and they don't understand us when we get mad about some things. Why are you mad about some things but you're not mad about this? I, I don't get this. You're, you're kind of wishy-washy. You have your moments where you're holy and right. Then you have your moments where, hey, don't tread on me because I want to live this way. You know, which one is it here? I, the, the world is confused with us, and I don't blame them. I think we're confused. We've lost our identity as well. We forget who we are in our, in our objectivity of wanting to be loved and wanting to be seen as love and all these things. We think that if we accept everything, that that'll show everybody that we love them. Our, I think our job is just to love Jesus. Right And focus on God and worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That will be the light in and of itself. That will make people change. <clears throat> I heard a guy talking about his wife uh, uh, the other day. It was a, a Hollywood actor, and uh, <clears throat> he was talking about his wife. And he was like, you know, when we were dating, I, was, uh, I, I wasn't sure this is somebody I really wanted to be with. Uh, because, you know, I, 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 I knew that she was really nice, and she was very uh, uh, grace-giving. And he goes, like, people, I would think that people were taking advantage of her left and right, and she would be helping people out financially, that I would be like, no way, I'm not going to do that. That's not smart, and I'm not going to be like that. She's Christian, and I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not really grown up that way, and I don't know how much I want to be a part of that. He goes, but what happened in my life is I began to look at her life and going, man, but she's happy, and she's peaceful about it like it doesn't bother her if somebody takes advantage of her what would bother her more that if she didn't help like what it did to her personally and he goes and I just looked at the fruit of her life because of what she was doing and she was it was just it was it was the proof and he goes man it just was so shocking to me that like here I am I think I have this thing figured out right but I'm watching the way she lives and I see the fruit of her life and how much people love her and are so attracted to her and they and they 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 find her just so funny and amusing and they and 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 she is everything like uh that you would think she is you know and he goes and then I'm looking at my own going man what what what, what would my fruit then be and he goes and that's when I realized like man I think I think this is the person I need to be like more you know, and he goes, and that's when I really started. And it was her separateness, right? 
She didn't care. She wasn't going to be this way for the whole public. She was being this way. I mean, most people don't even know she does stuff on the side, right? But that's the thing is that, that was kind of the cool thing about it. In her separateness, in her desire to do what's right and to be grace-giving and, and try to live the life of Christ the best that she can, right? She ends up winning over his life. I think that's so interesting, right? And I think, I think really, I think that should be us. I think that should be us. 1 Corinthians reads uh, 6, 10 through 11 reads, Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexualities or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. My favorite part, some of you were once like that. Key word is were. That's why the church has no place to judge because they're all in the church. Right? All those are in the church. They were once like that. Where homosexuals are in the church, they were once homosexuals, right? Not a big deal. The church is full of people who were once like something else, right? He says, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this is your testimony, that you were once like that. It's the key word. Now you're different. You're changed. You're transformed. A new creation, right? You're set apart, peculiar, right? You see where we're going? You're a peculiar people set apart for the glory of God. We hold the line when it comes to holiness. We hold the line when it comes to purity. We hold the line, right? I, I, I told Joy, I said, doing all the things that I see with all the pastors that I uh, uh, have, have in the issues that I know that are even happening around here, I said, more than ever, God's telling me to hold the line. And you know the weirdest thing about that is I feel like I'm 46. I'm not old, right? But I'm feeling pretty old these days. Like my, I think the generation of pastors that I would be hanging around with would think that, oh man, you're like you're old school. That's what they would say because I would choose to hold the line because I don't, I haven't adapted in this. Uh, oh, oh, it's well, it's culturally okay if we do these things, so we just should worry about. No, no, no. Some of the listen, the irony is the world knows it's weird. The world sees us in identity crisis is what they see. Like all of a sudden when, you know, 20 years ago you were saying it was wrong. If the word of God never changes, how come your message keeps changing? Well, because we want more people in our church. That's why it changes. And we realize if we keep convicting people of sin, they're not going to come to our church. Well, then maybe they don't need to come to church. Maybe they're not ready to come to church yet. Maybe we should be like Paul and just hand them back over to their own lives and give their up to their own reprobate, which means their own craziness. It's like when Jeremiah says uh, uh, that God's going to come in and just say yes to your prayers. And that's how he's going to get you back. You know, where you're like, God is answering my prayers. Everything is going my way. Uh-huh, wait for that, wait for that cookie to crumble. Yeah, when God, like, God considers saying yes to your prayers, yes to all of your prayers, as punishment. Whoo, that should tell you about how much you should have God say no in your life. Right? That a good parent says no from time to time. How bad would your kid be if you raised him up on yes? Uh-huh. Yeah, how bad would it be? Everybody knows how dumb that would be. That's not even a statement, right? Nobody would even take that seriously. But isn't it funny how much we want God to say yes to everything we want? <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. We will not defile ourselves with the things of this world. We are a people that are dedicated to the Lord. Our body, the Bible says Jesus went farther, right? He said our body is the temple. And God called this temple the temple of prayer. When you come to me, you're coming to a place that's set apart, that's undefiled, right? A place where you know 
you can talk to the Lord. Why? Because I've set myself aside for such a thing, to talk to the Lord, to be an advocate, to be what God calls or Jesus called the ambassador of Christ. Right? I'm a representative of God to this culture, to this world. I have a responsibility to live as an ambassador. Right? Right? We wouldn't expect our ambassador to be just some guy we found on the street and go, hey, here, we just send him over to a foreign country. It's like, Bill, what's going on? Oh, you know, I mean, just we would inspect. They know what he goes over there. He's got an office. He dresses nice. There's a certain way he's expected to be, right? The world understands this idea of authority. Why don't we? We're made ambassadors. We need to act like one. And, and we'll close with this. And we'll make this really easy. Worship, you can come on up. This is, how, this is how it just begins. This is just the beginning. This is just chapter one. Hey, at least I made it all through one chapter. We've gone through a book before with me. We know how bad that can be. Right? This is the entire chapter one, right? This is how it begins. When we're going to start the ball rolling, these are the things that are happening from the very beginning. The sweeping change of culture is happening, right? Everything's been good. Everything's been great. Remember the old days? Things were good, right? We, we Jews had things going on. Things were good. I mean, Joseph was in charge. And even though generations after Joseph, you know, it's still not too bad. We're prospering in Egypt. Egypt is wealthy. It's a good, nice, wealthy little culture. Seems prosperous. You know, we got food, we got water, we got shelter. The Egyptians aren't so bad, right? I mean, you know, at first they're not, right? And then all of a sudden you get a generation that grew up that didn't remember what the for- former generation had done. Does that sound familiar? We have a generation that's growing up that doesn't remember what the former generation had done. I don't know if you've looked around our culture lately. (laughs) The time isn't coming, it's here. The time to return, the time to repent, that's all now. You know what I think God's looking for today? God is looking for some Nehemiahs. He's looking for not just somebody to go back and build a wall. God's not interested in a wall right now. God's interested in bridges. But I will say this. God's looking for builders. And I'm like, well, man, I'm not qualified. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. All of you are more qualified than Nehemiah. All right? I would put your life above Nehemiah. I would never go, hey, you know, will you check this cup and see if it's poison for me? I love all of you way too much. I value your life way too much for that, right? Like Nehemiah, like as much as he's loved by the king and he obviously is favored, it is always favorable to have somebody next to you who's willing to drink poison for you. You're always going to be like, this is my favorite guy. He's willing to die for me. Every, three day, three times a day, right? Three times a day. Hey, and if I want a snack, it's more than that. You know, Nehemiah's got to be called late night. You ever had a late night, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock snack? Uh-huh. Nehemiah, get your butt up. I need you to taste everything in the fridge for me. Can you imagine that? I mean, like literally it has no value. We need some Nehemiahs, man. We need people who think that they're not important and that are humble enough. But you know what they do have? They have this burning heart for God. God, I am hurting for what this culture is going through. I'm hurting because there's people that are dying out there that don't know who you are, right? They're weeping on the floor. They're going, not only I repent, God, but I repent for everybody in my city, everybody in my country, right? We need some Ezekiels, people that God can call out on to do whatever God asks them to do, right? God God tells Ezekiel at one point, he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to show them what it's going to be like when they go to exile. They're not even going to like realize what you're doing. It's a crazy story. He goes, here's what you're going to do. Get your backpack ready and get all your stuff. Like if you had to leave tomorrow because you were exiled, get your pack ready. Put your dishes on there. Get everything ready like you had to carry out this day. Like, Like if you were running out of your house and you had to carry stuff, get it all in your backpack. He says, then I want you, because it's so hectic, I want you to cut a hole in your wall 
where everybody can see it, like right next to your door, which makes no sense, right? But I want you to cut a hole in the wall, and you're going to leap out of it and walk out the road like you're in exile just to show them this is what it's going to be like, right? Can you imagine how, like, listen, I've seen a lot of pastors do some, like, crazy stuff at the pulpit to show what they're talking about, but that's some crazy stuff, right? I I mean, it gets even, you think it gets weirder. You should read Ezekiel. There's one point where he's like, listen, I want you to tell them how bad it's going to be. It's going to be so bad that they're going to wish that they were eating sheep poop, right? He says, so get, he goes, no, they're going to be eating each other's feces is what he's going to say. And he goes, so Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do. Get some feces. And Ezekiel can already see it coming. He goes, please, God, don't make me eat that stuff. All right, get the sheep poop. You're going to eat sheep poop. And like, I love Ezekiel. Thank you, God. Like, I'll take that as a step up from human feces. Okay. Thank you, Lord. Right? I mean, like crazy stuff. Right? This, he needs people that are willing to do crazy. We don't like that. And none of us want to volunteer for that. I'm not sure Ezekiel volunteers for it. But when he says it, what do you do? He needs somebody that will do whatever he asks them to do. Right? Ezekiel's remembered because he does whatever God tells him to do. You know what's said in Ezekiel more than any other book? So that This phrase right here, so that you will know that I am the Lord. Everything that happens in Ezekiel, God is trying to say, I am here. I am here. We need some Jeremiah's. I think God has called me to be one of them. You know, Jeremiah is a man who has a message from God and can be okay with the fact that nobody might listen to him. That's what I feel like all the time. Like I have this crazy idea, this return idea that apparently not too many people see. That they can't see this repetitiveness of us always going astray and God always going, get back here. You're doing it wrong. You're worrying about the wrong things. You keep thinking that bigger is going to make you better and bigger don't do nothing for you. I make you everything. You keep thinking if you have all this money and finances, you're going to be able to help more people. You don't realize how I work. You keep putting all your stock and all your stuff, and that's your problem, right? These are the messages God's called me to say. Well, they're not easy messages because I'm going to tell you something. There's a lot of people that like their salaries. Can you imagine if they got rid of the, t- the tax break right now? You know how many churches would die because of just if that 501c3 was gone? There are so many churches that would lose their buildings and lose their everything. There are denominations that would be flattened because of the tax break. It's crazy, right? They've built their whole empire upon that. I mean... Listen, and they think they need it, but you don't. God was saving the world long before we had denominations. Long before we had theological differences, he was saving the world, right? I mean, we need some Ezekiels. We need some Nehemiahs and Jeremiahs to intercede, right? Hear the words to the Apostle Paul, and this is what we'll end with. Who's talking to a young Timothy, who is pastoring in a culture where spiritual warfare was the everyday aspect of life and where the culture was actually against them. Okay, so very similar to ours, right? 2 Timothy 4.15, Paul says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. Here's the warning. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires. And they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you 
should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. I can't think of a better way to persevere our culture than to model what we see here in Exodus. To be a people so sold out for God that even when the country comes against us and they send the people to come against us, right, that they begin to be influenced by our God. Much like how when Paul is in the jail cell and all of a sudden the Roman soldiers are getting saved, right? That the people around us begin to be influenced by us, whether our condition is in a wonderful setting where everything is easy, like sitting in here in tea time, or it's a setting that's unfortunate, right? Which I, I believe is coming, right? No matter what, how we walk our separateness, how we're persecuted, how we behave when it's difficult, right? Just like the, the, just like the Jews here, just like they're facing, the, the time is to return now. And that process isn't going to be easy. It's going to be hard because what you're going to find out through this book is that they carried a lot of baggage from Egypt, a lot of baggage from the world. You just don't realize how much the world is there. Right here in chapter 1, they seem so perfect, don't they? But we know by the time they get to the wilderness, they carried a lot of Egyptian culture with them. It had infiltrated everything about them. And they're not the same people we think they are. Let's worship the Lord this morning.